0: media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I have a couple questions for you this morning. Depending on how deeply you take this, uh will be if this is a deep question or not. Do you think that most of your worries, fears, and doubts that try to take root in your mind and your heart is based more on the known or the unknown? In other words, does it kind of get into the, okay, I have already know that this is coming up, this bill is coming up, I don't know how to pay for it, or here's a, a predicament in my life. And so these are known factors. Or is it the unknown? Are you one of those that speculates, yeah, but this could really blow up right here in my face. You know, there's all kinds of different persons. Or is it a mixture of the two? For, for you yourself, where does most of your source of worry and doubt and fear come from? The, the reason I ask that this morning is because just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we've eliminated those things from our lives. In fact, I think that our mind and our heart, unfortunately, are pretty fertile ground. And why is that? If we're already saved, if we're already this person in Christ, and he's already given us eternal life and given us the security of heaven, why would we still battle with this? But it's the very point that Paul makes in the first seven chapters of Romans. And we finally get to this place where he said all this about how we are sinners in our, in our nature and uh, uh, how we have this need for, for Christ and redemption. He's made this, this cause now in this case that Christ has provided The answer for that. And then we get to Romans chapter 8. And he begins to talk about what the Christ life looks like. What the spiritually led life looks like. That when the Holy Spirit fills us, calls us, identifies us, this is the life that we can live. And yet we still see the the challenge that's there. Why is that challenge there? Well, it's like I tell my discipleship guys three different things. Uh, My own flesh. I still have to deal with my own old nature. Plus, I live in a world that is fallen and it's filled with the nature of that fallenness. And then I have an adversary. And I don't know how, you know, how much you think on a daily basis about the adversary that we face, but I, I, I think that we always make two errors there, guys. Very honestly, I think we take too little of that. I think we can give too much mind to that. And we have to make sure that we stay focused on the gospel and what the gospel has done. But to make it not a part of You know, the the daily thought of that we're in spiritual warfare. I heard a great sermon this this past Monday. And the guy said, the minute you open your Bible, you're in spiritual warfare. And I really thought through that. And in in its simplicity, I'm going, it is. Every time we open the word of God, there's going to be spiritual warfare. And some of that spiritual warfare is going to come from the adversary. And some of that's going to come from my own nature of selfishness and, and wanting my own way. You know, the Bible doesn't say once or twice, but several times, every way man, every ways in a man's mind is, is, is right in his own mind. We battle with this. And yet we have every assurance in Jesus Christ that, that God has not only saved us, and that he's given us this saving grace, but that he's given us sustaining grace. And yet, would you admit today, and, and this is one of those things, uh, almost like AA or something, I'm Bobby Linkus, and I worry. I have fear. I have doubt. Well, why would we think that somehow we're not prone to those things? I know part of it is, the more that we mature in Christ, I think the less and less that we have to give into that. But to think that we're not going to be contested in those areas of okay, God, then we're making ourselves something that the Bible really has already described that that we're still having to contend with the old man, the old nature. I don't think that we look aside and say, well, everybody does it, so it's not a big deal. It's a really big deal. And so do you think it matters to Satan then, the adversary, if he can get you to worry or fear or doubt based on things that may not have happened and just may happen, are the actual activities of your own life and some of the real concerns that are there. I think it's very, very clear of the strategy of Satan. We see like in John 10, 10 the thief comes to only to steal, kill, and destroy. What is there not to understand there about a motive and a directive? John eight forty four says that he was a murderer from the beginning and he has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his own care out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. My question there is, sometimes when he lies though, are those believable lies to the flesh? If we didn't have the word of God, if we didn't have the spirit of God to give us direction, has Satan ever whispered something in your heart and your mind that you begin to believe? And it causes fear and doubt and worry? We're vulnerable creatures, and yet there's an answer. We're not left helpless, but we have a hope. And that hope is not just in something that's evolving. It is something that is finished and done. And that's what we will look at, that where Paul points to. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 says it this way, "...put on the full armor of God, the whole armor, <coughs> excuse me, that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the strategies..." It's a very unique Greek word there. It talks about a stratagem. It talks about multi-layers of development, an overall plan. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, not only is there this adversary, we identify as Satan, devil, whoever, whatever name you want to give there, but there's an organization that he has. There's uh, folks there. There's a uh, you know his minions, and you can make a cartoon out of it and have a little angel over here and a little over devil over here. But this is serious stuff. And, and what's it cost? It's not so much, it's not your salvation. If you're redeemed in Christ, he can't take that away. But he sure can challenge you on your joy. On a week like this when we're kind of instructed to be thankful, that all of a sudden instead of the blessings and the goodness of God that we just talked about, it's like, okay, but God, if, if you're so good, then why haven't you fixed this, this, and this? Folks, this is a very, very serious topic. And it's one of those things that I think that, for the most part, we kid about. Yeah, I was, you know, I've said it before. You know, I worry because my mom worried and her mom worried. And we think that we inherited it. We did inherit. Genesis 3. We inherited it, guys. So how do we deal with it? (coughs) Excuse me. How do we find ourselves in the midst of spiritual battles and, and... and have this around us that wants to take seed in our heart. During seminary, I owned with a couple other guys uh, that went to seminary there. And along with pastoring on the weekends, uh, we had a lawn business, landscaping business. And uh, we were very blessed to have some of the best yards in all of Fort Worth. We were blessed to have, you know, like neighborhoods. And these were million-dollar homes. And uh, so they wanted perfect yards. They really did. Not a single weed out there. And sometimes we would get a call about one weed. I mean, literally, instead of picking that one weed out, they'd call us and let us know. And so basically, what we explained to them that to keep weeds out of the the yard and to keep it really looking as good as possible, you really needed three things. There was a strategy. There's a plan. There's a way of doing this. One, you put out a pre-emergent, and that's the one that they had the hardest concept for. Now, why are you charging me $60 to put out something? There's no weeds out there. Well, it's to keep other weeds from coming in. But you don't see it working because it kills the weeds as they put off seed before they even germinate. So it's a pre-emergent. And so you put that out first. Then you fertilize the good grass. Have you ever heard the phrase that the best defense is a good offense? And so you get really healthy grass. And when healthy grass begins to take over in the yard, it will help fight the weeds just because it takes the space. And the third part, you just eradicate, you remove weeds that may pop up. Now, does that sound, anybody that knows landscaping or something, is that pretty simple? It's pretty pragmatic. Okay, it works like that, I promise you. Could that also be a way that we keep fear, worry, and doubt from germinating in our minds and our hearts? We have this pre-emergent, the word of God, the truth of God. We were just talking this morning about the more and more that we dispel that there is real truth in our world, in our society, the more chaos is going to come. Because now everybody just has opinions and everybody has, and there's no way to gauge those opinions except against your own opinions. The minute that you remove real truth from a society, then, then folks... We're at an end at that point. And so we have to have established truth. And that's kind of the pre-emergent. There's going to be times when you stay in the Word and you are filling your mind and your heart with the truth of Jesus Christ that a weed of worry and doubt and fear is going to come. And you're going to say, no, you don't belong here. And it's a pre-emergent. That seed comes, it tries to get in, but it can't take root. Why? Because it goes against the Word of God. There's a the second thing, you fertilize the good grass. Not only do you stay in the Word, but you stay in fellowship, you stay in accountability. You have responsibility for your life so that you're feeding on the Word of God consistently in your life. The third part, very practical. You get that worry, you get that fear, you get that, you know, part of your mind that just wants to doubt. You eradicate it. You identify it against the word of God, and and, and you say, no, this isn't truth. (coughs) Excuse me. In one way, so simple, and and yet, honestly, guys, honestly, you, you don't have to raise your hands. Do you battle with fear, doubt, and worry? Is it something that is a part of your life? Then we need to do this. We need to do these things so that in our minds and our hearts that we can focus on the truth of God. In Romans 8, a masterful, masterful chapter out of the Bible, Paul begins to describe the redeemed life. Now, when I say the redeemed life, I want you to I don't want you to, to think this is for like every single person who has ever lived. No, this is for the redeemed doesn't mean that we're better if we're redeemed, but it doesn't mean that we're different. And this is promises, this is the situation, this is a description, this is the identity of those who have been found in Christ and trusted the work of Christ in their lives. And they're now, you know, as they've trusted what God has done and, and called them, This is the redeemed life. In uh, verse 1, he says "Under no that we're now under no condemnation. Why? Because Christ has already solved that. We're free from the law of sin and death. In verse 2, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're a child of God and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. (coughs) We're helped in our weakness by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and on to talk about this is the spirit life now. This is the redeemed life. And at the end of that chapter, we come upon a time when Paul uses an old Hebrew writing technique where he uses rhetorical questions that he already knows the answer to. (coughs) Please excuse me. To point out how truth the truth is. Does that make sense? Did your mom ever ask you rhetorical questions? To point out the truth of how true truth is. And that's what Paul does here. Let's read through the passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 35. And you're actually going to see seven different questions, but it's five main questions, okay? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he is the one who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness are danger a sword? Paul comes back with these questions, rhetorical questions. Because he assumes that the reader knows the answer. Why? Because of the first seven chapters of Romans. He's already established our need for a Savior, and then the, the gift of God graciously to give us his own Son as a sufficient Savior. And now as he describes, this is what life looks like. As a redeemed Christian, this is what life looks like in Christ. He begins to ask these questions. Now, why does he ask those questions? I believe that one of the reasons that we could, I think, handily say is because he knew that even though we're redeemed, we're as saved as we're going to get, that we still battle with fear and worry and doubt, along with other sins in our lives. So what's the answer now, remember that we talked about a pre-emergent and a lawn. just know the truth and so that when that wayward weed comes and that seed of a weed comes that you can just kind of say no it doesn't belong here that's what we begin to see as we answer the, or ask these uh, five questions and, and this one I want, I want us to kind of go through the five questions that he asked. And, and I want us to try to personalize them as much as we can, the first one uh, many theologians, uh, among them John Calvin, their favorite, this was their life verse. And the question one, if God is for me, who can be against me? But, but will you do me a favor this morning? Will you not make that a bumper sticker? Because just because it's true and just because it's right doesn't mean that it's personal. I mean, when doubt and fear and worry come into your life, could we ask this one question and, and really maybe even end right there? If God is for me, who can be against me? I'm not trying to be simplistic here, but can you imagine how many seeds of worry, doubt, and fear that try to take germination into your mind and your heart could be eliminated if we just simply, with God's Word, through the power of his Holy Spirit, said, no, God is for me. And this problem, this situation cannot be against me. And the original Greek is actually written in such a way as that word if is actually used as an actuality, not a possibility. It's a statement that Paul's making. He's making it as a definitive statement. Notice that this verse is not coming from a vantage point, that nothing is against us. This isn't saying nothing's against us so I don't have to worry or have fear or anything. No, guys, we live in a world that is broken. (laughs) And we have our own brokenness that comes into this picture. But for the redeemed and for those that God has called, elected and chosen... We have a power that goes beyond ourselves. We have this hope that has been made real in Christ Jesus and his victory. So it's not just, well, I hope God's for me. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you put your faith and your trust in the work of Christ, that this really is your story. Or should be, can be. Paul is addressing a Roman audience that had a lot of foes. Paul's not trying to play like Pollyanna here, guys. He's not trying to say, well, you know, we live in a really kind of easy world. No, he knew that there was difficulty. And yet, in the midst of all this difficulty, he starts off with this truth. If God is for me, he can be against me. (coughs) Folks, Christianity... It's not a stick-your-head-in-the-ground-and-pretend-everything-is-okay kind of faith. Christianity isn't. Ignore that there's trouble around us. No, Christianity is, hey, we live in a broken world. We have brokenness of our own that we have to deal with. And yet there's a Redeemer who calls us out of that. It's the reality of the gospel. It's not a leap from a reality. To think that everything's just gonna be okay? In Psalms 118 verse 6, it says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. The Lord is on my side. And it says, well, what can man do to me? In one way, can you believe that like 100%? Th- that wasn't a rhetorical question. Is there a part of you that wants to believe that 100%? I mean, do you look at what this is? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Is there a reality when you think about that in the spiritual context of the gospel and the victory of Jesus Christ? Can, Can you embrace that? And yet at the same time, there's a part of us that says, yeah, but if a certain situation comes upon our life, Paul's argument is not the absence of problems. It is the presence of God. And that's just not a word game there. It's not just kind of playing with words. It's the very hope for us to have defeat of worry (coughs) and fear and doubt in our lives. Question number two. If God did not spare his own son for you, how will he not also graciously give me all things? Now before we start going, okay, then I want this, I want this, I want this, we'll look at the context. But look at verse 32. Paul wrote, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Does anybody else have a, a version that says he delivered him? The word deliver? Okay. Uh, that probably would be the word that I would go with. I think that fits the context and, and exactly what uh, that translation works really well here. But gave him up, delivered him for all of us. How will he not also graciously give us all things? That phrase in the ESV, but gave him up, <coughs> other translations, to deliver him, was a legal word. And it meant that legally you've handed somebody over to the custody of the authorities for judgment. Okay? So it was a technical word, it was a legal word, and basically it says here that God delivered him over, handed him over to the authorities to be judged. What was he judged for? Anybody want to take a gander? My sin. Your sin. I'm gonna pause here, guys, because I want us to get the weight of this. Go ahead and look at verse 32 again. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up. He delivered him over illegal. I put him he put him into the custody of those that would bring judgment. Judgment for the sins of Christ Himself. No, for my sins. Can, <coughs> can you imagine, and I'm sure you've seen stories like this before, where the mom or the dad had to call on their son and daughter and say, yeah, he's done this bad thing. I mean, can you can you imagine ever having to do that? That they realized that their son or their daughter had done something wrong, and, and so they called the authorities to come to the house to, to get that son or that daughter and put them into the custody of the police, the judge, the system, so that they could be judged for their wrong. Can you imagine how hard that would be even if you knew that they were deserving of that judgment and and whatever penalty? What if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that your son and your daughter had not done that. And in fact, it was the very people that you released him to that really were the lawbreakers. They were the ones that had committed the crime. I mean, it's one of those things that blows my mind. The reason I pause here, guys, I want us to feel the weight of that. When this verse is so rich, he did not spare his own son. He, he's making a standard. So Here's the standard by which we have a father who is gracious. By what standard? That he would deliver his own son over to judgment, and it wasn't even his own sin, but it was the person that he delivered him over to. It was their sin. Then he asked that second part of the question. How will you not also graciously give us all things? <coughs> Again, this isn't an empty check. It's not a blank check, oh, I want this, I want that. No, everything that is good and holy to build us into maturity, we have a gracious God who is not stingy. If God was willing to give us and not hold back his only son, what good thing would God withhold from us? Paul's whole argument is from the greater to the lesser. If he's done this, then, then wouldn't he do this? Excuse me. Trying to make a, uh, he's just trying to make a logical argument. Now let me ask you this question: How many weeds would that keep from germinating in your life if you fully embraced the weight of that verse? I mean, seriously. He gave me Jesus, his own son. He delivered him over to judgment for a crime that he never committed, but it was my crime, if God loves me so much, that much, that personally, then certainly have a God who's for me and not against me. I have a God who's not being stingy when it comes to the things that I might worry about or have fear about or even have doubts about. But Paul doesn't start there. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is God who justifies. Basically, that question, Paul's saying that God has proclaimed you not guilty. If, there's, if he's proclaimed you not guilty, is there a court above him? Is there an authority above God? Is there one that is going to come and say, yeah, that's what God said, but. He's the Supreme Court of Supreme Courts. And he's declared you, justified you. I love the amplified version in this. (laughs) Who shall bring any charge against God's elect when it is God who justifies, that is, who puts us in a right relationship with him? Who shall come forward and accuse or impeach those who God has chosen? Will God, who acquits us, Do you see the weight of that again, guys? I know for for some of you are going, okay, this is, probably I already know that. I already know that. I know how God has already done all these things for me. But we're talking about truth of God eliminating a place where worry doubt and fear can germinate in our minds and our hearts. So oftentimes that that growth, folks, isn't in a a way where, have you ever watched a mushroom or, or seen where there wasn't a mushroom the night before? And then you come out in your yard in the morning and there's a mushroom. And you're going, okay, how did that happen? I mean, that was some rapid growth. And there's some worries and fears that are like that. They're mushrooms. (coughs) They weren't there yesterday, and yet they're in full bloom today. Then there's other plants that it takes like the whole year for it to come into a place where it can kind of grow into vitality. And then three or four years before it really produces fruit. Uh, fears and doubts and worries are like that. Some are just all of a sudden they come, and they're overnight. And, And yet God has given us this truth to come back to. And here's my challenge that I think that most of us kind of forget. This isn't just a battle between us being in the word enough and knowing the word enough and quoting scripture and all this. There is an adversary, folks. (laughs) <laughs> as if we didn't already have two strikes against us with our own old nature being in a world that has fallen but there's an adversary remember John ten ten. Re- remember that the thief comes to only to steal kill and destroy Revelation 12 10 he's the accuser of the brothers time after time after time the, the, the word reminds us of the nature and the strategy of of Satan. Is that to make us fearful of him? No, but it is to be respectful of that. Christ has already won the war and and yet we are still gonna battle every day. I, I wish Christianity really was a one and done. Salvation wise it is. God opens our eyes to the gospel as we respond and see that there's a sufficient Savior and repentance in our lives, salvation, justification, boom, just like that, happens. And yet this sanctification, this growing more and more like Christ, guys, wow, it's a lifelong battle. Filled with highs. And when you agree lows, <coughs> times that you feel that you're so in the Word and so filled of the spirit that that no worry or fear or doubt could ever take place in your heart or your mind. And then other days you're you're wondering, God, how are you gonna get me out of this? If you even put God in the picture. So look at the next verse, verse 34. Who's condemned Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's almost as if Paul comes full effect from uh, Romans 8.1 when he says, okay, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He stated that at the beginning of this chapter. <laughs> and it's as if he comes down and says, okay, if he does not condemn me, then who else can condemn me? Look at the end of that verse. Not only is there one, uh, not one above God who can bring a charge, but the very one who could condemn us, the one who has the rightful place to condemn us, Christ Jesus. What is he doing in this verse? He's interceding for me. (coughs) I apologize, guys. Last one. Look at verse 5, or question number 5, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Uh, Truth is, one of Satan's favorite lies is for us to focus on our circumstances. And when Paul begins to say tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, they knew it all. He was writing in reality. (coughs) to what they were exposed to. And and I promise you that, that we've all fallen for those lies before. The real root in is where we're going to put our focus. The truth of God and how he's bringing us victory are the circumstances. I mean, isn't one of the realities that happens in your heart and your mind, or am I separated from this, that when there's things that are falling apart in your life, Have you ever just for a fleet second wondered if God really loved you and cared for you? Was even aware of what was going on in your life? I mean, for a fleet second, has that even happened? Or has it ever happened like this? (coughs) Where when things were falling apart in your life, you looked at your own performance. And you looked at your performance, okay, this is why God's doing that. Because I haven't made the right choices. I haven't been a good Christian. I haven't been this, that, or the other. And all of a sudden, instead of looking at the performance of Christ, we're looking at our own performance. Now, folks, there's a practical. Remember the whole reaping and sowing thing? There is, sometimes we just invite destruction into our life because of bad choices that we make. But there's not a, we can't draw a straight line that every time that something bad happens in our life, it's always because of a bad choice that we made. And so Paul goes through a list here and he goes, okay, when we have all these different things in our life <coughs> that are seemingly just falling apart, is our focus on our performance on the performance of Christ? God has not rested his love on our ability to, to be lovable, guys. Amen? I mean, let me say that again so that, that we can... What if God... Let me pose it another way. What if God placed all of the, the, the love that he would show on our ability to be lovable? How, how would that work <laughs> last week for you? What does Paul say? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall Tribulation, or distress, our persecution, or famine, or nakedness, our sword. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That word more than conquerors is, is a word, it means hyper-conqueror. What it means is that you're a super-conqueror. Why? Because you're that good of a Christian? No, because that's who you are in Christ Jesus. <coughs> verse 38 for I'm sure that neither in death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor in things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord through this stupid cough today I feel like I have been all over the place and I have not communicated well and all that can, can can I can I uh, share my heart with you? Based on the hope of the gospel, guys, not because of Bobby's opinion or anything. Can I just share my heart with you? <coughs> when I give in, when I personally, when Bobby Linkus gives in to doubt and fear and worry, it brings about an inability for the gospel to be shown through my life and my actions. doesn't mean the reality of the gospel isn't there. Just means I've given way to that, because instead of the truth that has been clearly established by the victory of Christ, I'm giving a question mark where, where God has put an exclamation point, <coughs> and He's saying this is true. And the minute I allow worry to come in, and just like the germ analogy or, or the uh, the germination. Analogy, and I allow those little seeds to come in. And it may start off all like small and seemingly innocent. <laughs> but if I don't eradicate it, if I don't, through the word of God, if I don't come to the Holy Spirit and plead to him, God, will you let the gospel that I know is true and real have weight here and eliminate this, this kind of thinking, this doubt and this fear? It's not long before that begins to dominate us, guys. Is it possible for worry, doubt, and fear (coughs) to fill a Christian's life, a redeemed person's life? I really can It's probably one of the saddest things you ever see in your life. And it saddens God because says, I gave you the answer. I gave you the full answer. I've already I've already finished that. I don't know that I'm ever going to walk this life to perfection. <coughs> Pretty sure that I'm not. And I think I'm going to have times of worry and doubt and fear. I just know in my own life that that struggle... I've only found one answer, guys. And that answer hasn't been, oh, I figured out that solution. Oh, I got this, or I did that. It's been running back to the cross. It's been running back to the truth of the gospel. It's been (coughs) finding the open arms of a loving Father and being embraced in the victory of what Christ has accomplished. I don't know how real of a problem this is to you. Maybe you're going, well, Bobby, you got problems. (coughs) I counsel with many of you, and so I know I'm not alone in this. And I say that in, in the most humble of ways, not to be silly or funny. It's a real problem, guys. It is a real problem. But there's a real answer. And the real answer is that we just come back and say, God, you have saved me. I can never be separated from your love. If you're for me, who can be against me? And just revolving ourselves in the truth of what God has done in your life. These aren't bumper sticker truisms. It's the difference between life and death. Vibrancy in the gospel are going back and, 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 and sinking in to the fears that would come from my flesh. Worries and doubts of the old man. I want to live the victory of the gospel life. And the only way I can do it, guys, is through the word of God, through the power of God constantly, constantly, constantly filtering my mind and my heart. Let's pray together this morning. (coughs) Father, I I don't know how to express this in a way that makes sense, Father. I so trust your Holy Spirit to do that. But Father, I would venture that I'm not the only one that would struggle today with... (coughs) <laughs> doubts and fears and worries. And Father, there's a part of me that says, okay, just toughen up, figuring out, and going in life. And yet, Father, every one of us are going to meet some difficulties and challenges one day. <clears throat> that it's not a matter of how far up you pull the bootstraps, Father. It's all about us just resting in you. And so Father, today, will, will you give us a recognition that worry and doubt and fear <coughs> is sin? Let, let's not dress it up like some cute little baby and say, yeah, I have my little doubts and my fears. Father, it is sin in our lives. Father, your son, he said, when I worry, I'm acting like an unbeliever. <coughs> so, Father, will you breathe belief back into me? Father, you will you believe, uh, Father, breathe back into us the hope of the gospel, the victory of Christ? You call us super conquerors. And sometimes we feel like that's the farthest thing that could ever be used as a description of our life. And yet you didn't do it because we are some great Christians. You did it because you brought us a great salvation. So give us that victory, Father. (laughs) Help us to identify fears and doubts, worries in our life. Father, help us to, to claim it as sin, to pronounce what it is, And, Father, help us to know your faithfulness, to forgive and forgive (coughs) and forgive. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Give us victory in these areas of our lives so that we might see that, Father, truly, what a good and wonderful God you are and how through all of our lives, You have been so faithful, so faithful. We love you, and we worship you, Father, as we pray this in the hope that is the answer. Christ Jesus, our Lord.